This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. You're listening to the MomWell Podcast. Today we're doing things a little bit differently. After 200 episodes and a lot of growth along the way, I hear so often from new listeners who don't know where to start. So we're digging back into our vault to revisit some of our most popular episodes. These are a great place for new listeners to focus and a valuable revisit for the rest of us. For today's vault revisit, we're going back to episode 104 with New York Times bestselling author Eve Rodsky. Eve wrote the book Fair Play and created the companion card deck to help moms communicate the mental load and have a tangible place to start when redistributing the labor in a new way within the home. Since this episode, Eve has also written a new book, Find Your Unicorn Space, which helps moms envision what new passions and ventures they would like to explore as they begin to reclaim some time and space for themselves. She returned to the show in episode 185 to discuss how to rediscover yourself after motherhood. If today's vault episode resonates with you, I encourage you to explore that episode next and to continue the journey to forging your own identity in motherhood. I'm so glad that I've gotten the opportunity to get to know Eve over the last couple of years. She and I truly share so much passion for maternal mental health and helping couples everywhere move out of resentment and blame into working together as a team to share the labor. In today's episode, Eve and I discuss why moms become the default parent and carriers of the invisible load, the toxic messaging around time, money, and care work that leaves moms feeling unseen and unsure how to advocate for themselves, how intensive mothering ideology sets us up to carry the load, and how to begin shifting labor and viewing our time in a different light. But before jumping in, I'd like to share some words from Eve about my upcoming book, Releasing the Mother Load. Eve's perspective and endorsement on this book mean the world to me, given that she is the New York Times bestselling author in this space, with nearly a million copies of Fair Play being sold. So here's what Eve had to say about releasing the mother load. If you've ever felt like you're the only one struggling with motherhood, this book is for you. Erica approaches the weight that modern moms feel with compassion, understanding, and a proactive method to breaking out from under it. You are not alone, you are not failing, and you don't have to carry the weight by yourself. Thank you so much, Eve, for these words and also for your guidance and mentorship and friendship over the last several years. I appreciate you and the work you do to champion women so much. To learn more about releasing the motherload, head to ericajossa.com. That's E-R-I-C-A-D-J-O-S-S-A dot com. Now, let's hear my conversation with New York Times bestselling author, Eve Rodsky. Has becoming a parent created a strain in your relationship? If so, you are far from alone. In fact, 67% of parents report a decline in satisfaction in their relationship during the first three years of baby's life. Parenthood brings new responsibilities, new stresses, and new potential sources of conflict. You might find yourself trying to cope with an imbalance in household labor or feeling unseen, unheard, and unappreciated. When your needs aren't being met, it can lead to a lack of intimacy and an increase in resentment. And when you start to feel resentful, it often becomes even more difficult to connect and communicate with your partner, creating a vicious cycle. If you're finding yourself feeling resentful, frustrated, or angry with your partner, talking to a specialized therapist who understands this adjustment can help. Mom therapists will help you work through your resentment, understand your emotions, help you set boundaries, communicate your needs, and help you explore what's really going on underneath your frustration. We provide virtual therapy support across Canada and are now serving 25 states in the U.S. Ready to learn more? Head to momwell.com booking to set up a free 15-minute virtual consultation. That's momwell.com booking. Welcome to the MomWell Podcast, where we're committed to helping you cope with the load of motherhood. I'm your host, registered psychotherapist and founder of MomWell, Erica Jossa. At MomWell, we know that motherhood is hard, but care shouldn't be. We're committed to providing you with knowledge, tools, and support to navigate the challenges of motherhood. Our mission is to put moms back on the priority list and empower them to create a mental wellness toolbox free from judgment, fear, and shame. On the show, we'll be discussing topics such as postpartum depression, identity loss, the mental load of motherhood, and more. We'll be joined by experts, moms, and professionals who can offer advice, practical tips, relatable stories, and honest conversations. Here at MomWall, we believe that when a mom is well, a baby is well. 
So join us as we discuss the topics that matter to you with experts who get it. Together, we can redefine motherhood and change the way moms are treated. Eve, thank you so much for taking the time to be on our show today. You and I have been kind of like rubbing shoulders, bumping into each other in the Instagram space from time to time. And this interview and us sitting down and getting to know each other is just long overdue. Thank you so much for being here. Absolutely. I think your content on social media is probably the best content on this topic of invisible work, second shift, emotional labor, mental load. I just want to let you know how much I admire your work, how important it is. And it was my most exciting thing of the day was to be able to meet you, Erica. Oh, I love that. You are so sweet. And it's true. As I really dove into your work more, like you were coming up, people were tagging you in comments as I talked about the invisible load and the mental load. And everyone's like, oh, Eve's book and the fair play method. And we do this in our home. And I was just like, I had to dive in and see what it was all about. And I think that we share an overlap in so many ways. So I can't wait to to dive into this work because I see how we share in a same passion and sort of way of viewing things or worldview or however. I'm so curious before we dive into what fair play is and how it works and some of the rules and methods of it. How in the world does a lawyer (laughs) go from, you know, working in maybe corporate or however your career trajectory and structure was to, I want to say stepping into like the parenting space pretty much? Yeah. I mean... I think Erica, what do they what do psychologists call all research? I think they or anthropologists, they call it me search. And um <laughs> I definitely, you know, if you looked at my third grade wall, like my what do you want to be when you grow up wall, I think that Miss Hornstein had us make gender division of labor specialists. It was definitely not on that wall. Um, but for me, what's interesting about the trajectory to fair play that I write about in the book was it really did start with that very formative day in my life after my second son, Ben, was born, where my husband, Seth, sent me a text that said, I'm surprised you didn't get blueberries. And I don't get to unpack it in the book as well as I think maybe some of your listeners would understand. I I talk about sobbing on the side of the road over that text, but the context for that day was I just opted out of the traditional workforce. And I say that now, I think in quotes, because I think any woman who's Mm. been, who has left the traditional workforce has been forced out in some way. And I know looking Mm -hmm. back now, it was not a choice. (laughs) I was definitely forced out from many death by a thousand cuts, but I'd started my own law firm. I remember this day really well. I was already texting and driving, which is dangerous enough when I'm receiving Seth's, I'm surprised you didn't get blueberries. But I also had a breast pump and a diaper bag in the passenger seat of my car. I had gifts for a newborn baby to return in the backseat of my car because I just had Ben, my second son. Mm. I was in the car because I was responsible for picking up Zach, my older son, from his toddler transition program, which we know in America costs our entire salaries and uh, lasts about seven minutes. As I said earlier, (laughs) I was already opted out, right, of the traditional workforce or forced out. So I had started my own law firm, had a client contract in my lap. And I think the thing I distinctly remember, Erica, about that day was this contract was in my lap because I do everything with pens, analog. And as I would hit the stop sign because I was late to pick up Zach, this pen would sort of sneak up and sort of stab me in the vagina. Like that's what I remember just being stabbed in the vagina (laughs) by a pen. And so (laughs) I think for me, that's what this day was. The metaphor of, of Seth and that moment of being stabbed in the vagina by a pen, being late to pick up Zach, the chaos, the swirl of the chaos around, it really all led me to feel like I was collectively punched in the stomach I had to pull over to the side of the road and collect myself. I was a mess. I was thinking that my marriage, how cliche, right? That my marriage is going to end over being the fulfiller of my husband's smoothie needs and not my affair with an NFL player, which is definitely how I envisioned my marriage to end. Um, (laughs) But the more important, more profound things I think I was thinking that day was really, how did I get to this place where my career and marriage combo look nothing 
nothing like I envisioned it. And the surprise, so I didn't have an Erica, right? I didn't have you back then. This was 10 years ago when the iPad hadn't even been invented. I think it came out that year. There was no communities of women talking about invisible work. And it turns out that, you know, I had become the default, I call in fair play the she-fault for every single household and domestic task for my family. Yeah. I was a statistic. I mean, two thirds or more of what it takes to run a home and family, as you often post about, right, falls on women in hetero cisgender relationships. And I was undeniably living that statistic, Erica, but I had no idea. And I guess what I was really more profoundly thinking that day was I had real privilege <laughs> to not be in that position on the side of the road. I, I'm i a product of a single mother. I vowed literally from, and maybe Erica, you would call me a parental child, but from being my mother's partner with eviction notices and late utility bills and reminding her to pay our rent and color coding our calendars for what I had after school activities, I saw how hard it was for a single mother to raise two kids especially without economic privilege at that point. And um, I didn't want that life for myself. So I had vowed from an early age, I would have an equal partner. And more importantly, I'm a Harvard trained mediator. I'm literally, right. my day job, right, is I, I work for families that look like the HBO show Succession. Everyone should feel bad for me because it's it's hard work. But what I do is I bring grace and humor and generosity through systems, through difficult conversations. I'm trained as an attorney in difficult conversations. Yes. And still I was not talking, communicating to Seth about asking for what I need or the resentment or anger. I had let it build up Hmm. to the point where I was broken down. And that is the journey to fair play for me. It was Hmm. a profound understanding that something was incredibly wrong, that I did not have the privilege to stop it for myself, but that I would commit myself to understanding what was happening to me And then really devote my life to making sure it never happens to any other woman or person again. It's a big goal, but that's how I looked at it then. Yeah. Well, it gives me all the goosies when you talk about it in that way. And when you, it's a big goal, but we're talking about being on Reese Witherspoon's book list and all the like New York Times bestselling, all the ways that this has been featured. As you're describing this moment, It reminds me so much of Dr. Sophie Brock's work and some conversations I've had with her about how we've been freed as women, but are constrained as mothers. Mm. We've been liberated as women. You, Harvard-trained lawyer, building your own law firm, reach for the stars, enter motherhood. Oh, pick up the blueberry. Like, you know what I mean? It's just this... It is this mother's fall back into these gendered norms and stereotypes as you highlight. And one of the other really interesting things that I love that you went through is the beliefs about time being unequal. Yes. Like, so now all of a sudden that I'm a mother, my time is valued differently than how it was before. Can we pull on a couple of those myths? I have the book here even. I can flip to a few of them. Yes, please, please. Like one of my favorites, hold on, let me just find it here. And while you look for that, I will say that's exactly right. I think it's why when I was giving a commencement speech last year that got canceled because of COVID, my title was you only have 10 years left to live. And it was going to be funny, I promise. But it was was a speech to 21-year-old women about exactly that topic that we've been sold a lie, that if we've been freed as women, it's basically just a decade, a decade of freedom if you decide to have any chosen or biological family, you get about 10 years of that freedom. Well, the first one off the bat being time is money. Mm -hmm. Like I could probably quoted that to myself like last week. You know what I mean? Like I got to offload stuff so I could do this, do that. Like that's how I run, you know, a business is by delegating things often. I never thought how that contributes to the devaluing of the care work that we do. Like such a shift in perspective, even from that, like off the top of the first myth, right? And then you don't work, you have more time. These are the things that I hear women and moms say to me time and time and time again, is that because I'm not exchanging my time for money, 
what I do is not valued as work or as, you know, valuable or not placed on the same pedestal or in equal value to my partners. And this plays into us, you know, starting even the conversation about fair play. If we can't get to a place where we can view our time as equal, how are we going to approach a conversation about distributing things in the home? Because we're always going to sort of fall under the assumption that we should take it on ourselves. So it's, it's a really hard mindset to break out of because we're so conditioned in this way of thinking. A hundred percent. I mean, you hit to me, I just got chills because you hit to me on the exact head of why I'm a left brain thinker, Erica. I'm a systems thinker. As I said earlier, what, what was easy for me to understand as I started to try to solve this problem for myself was that there was something wrong with the systems of how we we treated our home. And that, we'll get to that because the secret formula that now that I've been, have probably had the longest and biggest longitudinal study of unpaid labor through all these, you know, thousands of couples in my CRM database is that there is a secret formula of boundaries, systems, and communication that do lead to thriving in a work-life integration way. But the systems, which we'll get to, ironically became the easy part, which is the ownership mindset of fair play, which is very similar to your work as well. But was the hardest thing though for me was I couldn't even get women to the table. Mm. And so the sandwich, why it's a secret formula and not just systems, which fair play is, was that you have to sandwich it in the permission to be unavailable from your roles and the permission to ask for what you need, the boundaries and the communication. And for people who say boundaries are taking a walk around the block, like, good luck. Um, You know, boundaries are being able to value your time equally as our male counterparts. And I'm not attacking individual men here at all. There's no man who will actively say, I devalue my, my wife's time, again, centering the hetero cisgender norms that sometimes bring us down. But what was so fascinating to me was a true boundary, as I said earlier, is as viewing our time as diamonds. And as society, we have been taught as women to guard men's time as if it's finite like diamonds and to treat our own time as if it's infinite like sand. And Hmm. we see that everywhere. And what, what I started to notice before I could even get to people coming to the table to understand that the system is not rocket science and it's really actually easy. Right. Why is there so much resistance? Yes. Was understanding that from birth, we see something in um, an economic phenomenon where if women enter a male profession, the salaries automatically start to come down. So we're watching our time sort of be viewed as less valuable. We say things to women like breastfeeding is free. When it's when it's an eighteen hundred hour commitment a year job, right? right? Um, but I think the most shocking thing, as you were reflecting on earlier, was what I started to write. So as anthropology, economics that that's I'm trained that way. I'm I'm a lawyer. I the way I look at the world, I became a lawyer because I think it's funny. There's a buzzword about design thinking now, designing your life or whatever. But the people who really design societies are lawyers, right? You want people to stop at a stop sign you pass a law. If you want people not to vote in Georgia, you pass a law, right? So Mm. I'm always looking at the way society is designed. And what was fascinating to me was as I started to write notes to myself, this one, um, C-I-Y-O-O kept coming up over and over again. And as I would interview women, and that meant complicit in your own oppression, Mm. including myself, right? I'm, I'm I'm not saying I'm not. But the way that we were most complicit in our oppression was how I heard women devalue your time. And as Erica just read to you, if you're a listener and you've ever said to yourself, I do more unpaid labor, childcare, housework, because my partner makes more money than me, that's a toxic time message. If you've ever said to yourself, I do more unpaid labor because I'm a better multitasker, untrue. That's a toxic time message. If you've ever said, I do more unpaid labor because in the time it takes me to tell him, her, they what to do, I should do it myself. That's a toxic time message. If you've ever said to yourself, yes, we're both two colorectal surgeons, but my partner is better at focusing at one task at a time and I can find the time. That's a toxic time message because Mm. there's actually no way to find time. 
And there's just a different expectation in society over how women are supposed to use our time. And Erica, that was it. That was my breakthrough for Seth and me. Mm-hmm. It was an understanding in my own self-talk and my understanding and the triggering work it took me to believe that my time was diamonds, that I deserved as much time choice over how I use my day as Seth does. And I will tell you my toxic time message I had to break was that I'm a better multitasker. Like, I don't need you because I came out of a single mother household. I took pride Mm -hmm. in not needing anybody and doing it all. And so when I would say to myself, I'm a better multitasker, I finally went to a doctor, one of the top neuroscientists in the developing brain in America. And I asked him early on in, in the book's research, you know, are women better multitaskers? Are we somehow wired differently for care? And he laughed and said, well, do you mean biologically or culturally? And I said, well, duh, you're a neuroscientist. Like, I mean, biologically. And he's like, no, Mm. but Eve, but imagine we men or the men in power structures. And he was saying this facetiously, of course, because he's a good ally, but imagine we men can convince you women that you're better at wiping asses and doing dishes. How great for my leisure time, for my tenure, for my Mm. golf game. And I don't even have to ask you to do it because you've taken pride in these tasks and not asked men to do it because you are taking pride in being better at it. So I don't have to do these unpaid labor tasks and I get my leisure time back. That was a really hard message for me to hear. So I think this is triggering work. It's why we have you, Erica, to guide us through it. But this is a 101, right? This took me Mm -hmm. 10 years to unlearn the idea that I could assert to Seth a boundary and say, you have four hours after our kids go to bed to work out, check PowerPoint, watch Sports Center, whereas I'm doing things in service of our home until my head hits the pillow after you're already asleep. And that's fundamentally unfair. Want to get smarter about your health but feel overwhelmed trying to separate fact from fiction? We hear a lot about gut health, microbiomes, and other nutrition topics. But taking the time to research these is exhausting, and there's a lot of misinformation out there. The Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast makes it so much easier to get the information you need. With the help of world-leading scientists, the podcast gives you research-based information so you can make informed choices for yourself without pressure and guilt. People are loving Zoe Science and Nutrition. Listener Stephanie's Apple Review says the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast is a life-changing, science-based, myth-busting podcast. That's a must-listen for anyone who eats food and wants to understand how it affects their body. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast, you can join Stephanie and millions of others accessing quality information about their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. One of the most relentless mental loads is being the juggler of medical appointments. Researching doctors, reading reviews, making phone calls to book appointments, it's a lot of stress when you're already juggling so much invisible labor. That's what makes ZocDoc great for moms. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare hundreds of types of highly rated in-network doctors, including mental health providers, and instantly book appointments with them online. ZocDoc has doctors of all specialties, including therapists, psychiatrists, and psychologists with verified patient reviews so you can make sure they check all your boxes. You can find mental health providers who offer in-person appointments, virtual consults, or both, whatever works for you. The typical wait time to see a mental health provider booked on ZocDoc is just four days. Sometimes you can even book same-day appointments. Make juggling appointments easier with ZocDoc. Go to ZocDoc.com slash MomWell and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated therapist, psychiatrist, or psychologist today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash MomWell. ZocDoc.com slash MomWell. Well, the visual that really drove this home for me in the book was laying out, I can't remember their names, but like the, and we're using sort of gendered stereotypes here, but the male's schedule. Yes, yes, And then the wife's schedule. And it's like, you know, go to this meeting, (laughs) have lunch, 
drive home, like whatever like was actually on the calendar in that day was what was on the calendar that day. And then you've got the mother's schedule who is maybe equally trying to climb a ladder or not. Might they be have the home. same job, Erica. That that couple that example had the exact same their job. Schedule. Oh they had the exact gosh. same job. Yeah. They were co-owners of a production company where I asked them to submit me their daily schedule. I, like, I cannot. And oh my gosh. it was her schedule, which was, as we just said, full of invisible works, time confetti, you know, that chopping up of your time to jump out of the meeting, to go make the dentist appointment, to jump out, to order the lunch and pack the kids because they were moving to Toronto for a movie. Whereas her husband's time was just the stuff on the calendar, like you said. And it's just like all the light bulbs going off for me. And it's interesting because I talk about it as like the air we breathe, or this is the water we were born into. Like when we're swimming in a society that has (laughs) delivered these messages to us from the time we come out of the womb and we've seen women, we've seen mothers perform in this way, the feeling is that, oh, like this is just what I do know. And I can so remember this. I was like, so type A, get my master's, see clients. I'm going to go for my PhD. I'm going to do all this stuff. I enter motherhood. I took three (laughs) maternity leaves, which we're very fortunate to have in Canada, three years out of my career that I completely shifted into the role of motherhood, which has pros and cons. And everybody wants to do that differently. And we've got lots of values and opinions about that. But like, why didn't we divide it? Why didn't I take Mm -hmm. half the time and my husband Mm -hmm. took half the time? Like, why did I feel also took on myself? Like, I have to be the one that gets up. I have to do and manage all these things. Everybody's doing it, you know, because we're like born into this like air we breathe, it feels like. Mm -hmm. 100%. And I think that's the reckoning, the reckoning of why for me, I consider myself an attorney, but also an author and an activist is, you know, I think the biggest pushback I always get is why are you writing to women? You know, shouldn't you be writing to men? Mm. And the complicit in your own oppression is why I write to women, because we absolutely can live a both and life and not an either or life where we can recognize we're living in shitty waters, as you said, or, or polluted air. But we still need to breathe, Erica, right? We still need to breathe. And we can breathe better. We can put on an oxygen mask or whatever metaphor we want to use. That is our partners inviting them into their full power in the home so that we can step out into our full power in the world. It's not like we're going to be the Vivian Green quote where we're waiting for the storm to pass. We're going to learn to dance in the rain. Yeah. But the point is that we can dance in the rain. We don't have to drown in the rain. And part of what fair play is, is understanding that, yes, I'm addressing systemic inequity and my audience is often women, but actually that's not always true. It's about 30% men. But the truth is that we can still address and make our lives more fair and take agency in our own lives to push back against the polluted air while still unfortunately living within it. And we'll fight for those systems too. I will say that that is a big part of my life now Mm. is devoting my life to fighting for people who have less privileged who are single mothers who have no social safety net, especially in America. Right. And I think that you're addressing something really important that we can call out explicitly here is that there are levels to this. There is this societal level, the way that policies are formed within the workplace, within our governments, like there's levels to that. And then like you said, but when we when we wake up to the, like our eyes awaken to the fact that the air is polluted around us, we have some responsibility to find clean air to breathe. Like how do we carve out (laughs) space, right? And that is hard. It's so interesting because I can track this journey in myself, right? Like as I think back, going through the three maternity leaves, feeling like I had jumped ship on myself, right? I had abandoned myself in a way, thinking that's what motherhood is supposed to be. Completely like feeling... Like, well, I went through postpartum depression, whether this was a factor that contributed in it or not, I'm sure it's a part of it because I had just jump shipped on here. I was this A type person like going after all these things. And I thought, oh, I had to completely 100% immerse myself in this role. And it wasn't until I came to this breaking point that I talk about often with my postpartum depression and just like, screw it. 
Like, I'm done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm not doing this for anybody else. I can't keep up with this perfectionist, you know, perfect mom ideal. Like, what do I need? And when I centered myself, and I'm sure that this is a big way that you're going with your new book, which we're going to talk about this, Find Your Unicorn Space and and embracing creativity and all of that. When I found and started to fed and nurture my creative side and Mm -hmm. I started to gain skills like photography and, you know, understanding Instagram, this whole platform was birthed out of that time. And it's crazy to think that if I didn't carve out clean air, none of this would have happened, right? Well, I think it 100% this is your unicorn space. It is exactly what unicorn space is, which is the active pursuit of what makes you you and sharing it with the world. And no one could do what Erica does the way you do it. And I think it does come out of your experiences, which is so important. And that is also the boundary setting. Um, what I like to say, and I think it's really, really important, is again, since I sit on all these productivity panels, And I get to hear male and pale people say, well, you know, it's as simple as uh, having two uninterrupted days a week, right? (laughs) Where I just want to like stab them with that pen that was in my vagina (laughs) um, and be like, two uninterrupted days a week? What are you talking? I mean, what? Is that a thing? Women are interrupted every three minutes and 42 seconds. But I think back to the boundaries, a true boundary in this society, which is so, as we're talking about, doesn't value our time and is incredibly subversive to understand that a true boundary, the antidote to burnout is not a walk around the block, as we said. It's not a coffee with a friend as much as I wish it was. It's being interested in your own life. Mm. No one can tell you how to do that. And that's why the second book was almost harder to write because I'm very good at very prescriptive solutions and say, you hold this many cards, I see it correlate to the lightening of people's loads and women being happier. But Unicorn Space, the second book, is a question I ask back to you, you know, listener, which is what makes you you and how do you share that with the world? Being interested in your own life is the unlearning and why the system is the easy part. The system is the easy part. The fair play was the easy part. But understanding that we deserve that permission to be unavailable from our roles. Mm. Erica, as you as you said, you had to burn it down to get there. I had to burn it down to get there. I had to have a blueberries breakdown on the side of the road where I said to myself, I could either eat, pray, love this shit out of this marriage, right? Um, lose myself. Or as my friend said, she said, well, you don't really need a division of labor, Eve, if you have court-ordered custody, so I said, well, is that what I, is that what it's going to take, right? Court ordered custody to get me to a place where my partner will own some shit in my home. Right. But for me, because you asked that question of how did I go from being an M&A attorney and a family mediator to this marriage and parenting space, yeah. it became one profound question that I had to ask myself when option one of leaving my marriage and losing myself in my marriage were not the option one and two I wanted to take. Door three became asking the most important question I've ever asked, really myself and others in the past decade, which was what would happen if we started to treat our home as our most important organization? And when I started to ask that, I remember one man said to me, he's like, oh, you mean the opposite of my house where we wait to decide who's taking the dog out? right? When it's about to take a piss on the rug. And I was like, yep, yeah, exactly. Like the opposite of whatever that that is, the opposite of that, you know? <laughs> Since organizational management, working with organizations that combine systems with family trauma and attributions and layers to make complex decisions is my specialty. Once I understood that the home is our most important organization, but we don't treat it as such, we give it no respect and rigor, even my Aunt Marion's Mahjong group, Erica, has more clearly defined expectations in the home, right? <laughs> you don't bring snack twice to that group, you're out. Once I understood that that could be a framework for looking at the home organization, I was able to understand how to start to create a solution that that is steeped in 50 years of research. Yeah. And I would love for us to briefly hit some of the tops of the method and what it looks like and describe it for people. And I encourage you, like this book is so incredible and you've got the cards that pair with it, which I told you I'm trying to get my hands on. We're working on it. Yes. I'm sending them to you. Yes. 
And if any of your listeners want them, I'm supposed to be getting a new big apology shipment for supply chain problems. So just have them DM you and I will send you a a box. Yeah, we'll link them for sure in the show notes as well so people can navigate to the tools that we're discussing. Uh, But I was going through the cards as they're listed in the book and in my mind and taking inventory even in that way. What the load would have looked like when I was on maternity leave and when I first entered motherhood and what it looks like now are so vastly different in a really amazing way. I feel like actually, if it's like a teeter-totter, if you will, it's not fair. And I know that we talk about this like equal versus fair. I'm sorry, it's not equal. I would say it tilts more towards my partner right now because of the speed at which my business is growing. And we got to retire him out of corporate life and he is in a role. Um, He's also working on his own projects and things, but it's almost more similar to the role that I was in previously because of this shift. We make a really good team and we reevaluate and we have these conversations. So can we talk about this fair play method and, and some of the ways that we approach it? Absolutely. I think, so I'll tell you the second most important question I asked after, you know, how do you treat your home as your most important organization? The second most important question I asked in the past decade, and I was able to ask this in 17 countries, was how did mustard get in your refrigerator? (laughs) My favorite question (laughs) ever. Because condiments are universal, Erica. Everybody likes condiments. It doesn't have to be mustard. Apparently, though, I found out actually a lot of cultures do really like a version of mustard. So funny. So why that question was so important was what I was able to start seeing was there was actually universal themes across cultures, even in the Nordic countries that I always find vaguely racist, that we always think like they're the best countries in the world. Um, Norway, Sweden, Finland, like, I love you guys. You're great followers of Fair Play. But a lot of the women there were able to explain that a lot of the issues we go through are still very much a part of their lived experience as well. Mm -hmm. And so what was happening, and again, I'm going to center again the hetero cisgender marriage here because sadly, that's where a lot of our norms come from for other lived experiences. It was somebody, the mother or or the woman say to me, mustard is in my refrigerator because my partner likes it. Or more commonly, you know, my second son, Johnny, won't eat his protein unless he douses it in mustard. And I don't want him to choke on his protein. So I buy him mustard. Now that phase of recognizing a problem and solving for it is actually what we get paid big bucks for in corporate America. That's conception. That comes out of my organizational management world. Then I was able to notice that people said to me, oh yeah, then I get stakeholder buy-in. They didn't actually say stakeholder buy-in, but I get, I get, <laughs> I get my family to tell me what they need for the grocery list. And I write it down and I um, also monitor the mustard for when it's running low. That again, big bucks, that's planning. That is planning. We know that phase from project management. And then I would hear, oh yeah, and then I send Steve to the store and and he brings home spicy Dijon, Eve, every fucking time. Uh, and I ask for French's yellow mustard. And um, <laughs> uh, the, what is this spreadsheet you have? Uh, these cards, uh, you want me to trust my husband with uh, the estate planning card, my living will, when uh, he can't even bring home the right type of mustard? And so it was over and over again, Erica, it was Mm. moleskin after moleskin of the same, the same to the point where sociologists call it the saturation point where I could start predicting based on just one demo, you know, just someone have to say their name and I could predict what I would hear in that interview that I realized it's actually a very common organizational failure, what people are talking about. When you hold the conception and planning with one person, or now is called the cognitive labor, because the beauty of this was the month Fair Play came out, it turns out a peer-reviewed study came out of Harvard to prove what I was saying, again, which, I mean, it's not not rocket science. If you interview that many people, it's going to probably come up in science sometimes. So it was great. Alison Daminger, who's now a friend, she's a sociologist who proved that women hold the cognitive labor, the conception, what I call the conception and planning. And then the execution is often done when it's done at all by a partner. That breakup is the opposite in the workplace of what we call a healthy organization because a healthy organization has two fundamental traits to it and those are accountability and trust. Mm. So 
as a mediator, right, we're taught the presenting problem is not the real problem, which I'm sure you're taught, of course, in your practice as well. Um, But it is this interesting idea of accountability and trust is lost when you bring home the wrong type of mustard. And when you erode trust and accountability over a thousand decisions like this, then you get to a place of rage and resentment, which is a terrible cycle to be in. And so that was it. It was that simple, Erica. Again, we're not talking about boundaries and all the stuff we unpacked in the beginning part of this podcast, which is the really hard triggering point of actually getting to the table to believe, to believe you actually deserve someone take over Mm -hmm. these tasks. But if you listen and stay with us on this journey through Erica and my work, which is your time is diamonds and you deserve this beautiful life to be interested in your own life. If you can hang on and say one day you will believe that with us, but you can pretend to believe it now that your time is diamonds, then the actual system itself, the handing over of tasks with a full ownership mindset of conception, planning, and execution is actually really not, it's really not that hard. It's not rocket science Mm -hmm. to understand that someone who has context, not control, as Netflix calls it, is going to be a lot more motivated to meet a certain standard of care than someone who has complete control but no context, which often we call nagging in our society. <laughs> Mom rage often leads us to feeling ashamed, but the truth is that our rage doesn't mean we're bad moms. In fact, anger is a sign from our bodies that our needs aren't being met. As moms and therapists, Dr. Ashirin Arim's psyched mommy and I understand mom rage. We know that we all lose our cool sometimes. And we also know that with the right tools and strategies in place, those moments happen less often. We've teamed up and combined our years of experience to create All The Rage, raising kids with less anger and more connection, a course designed to be your go-to resource for preventing and handling your anger. We dive into what causes your anger, how it impacts your body, how to reframe your thinking, and how to stay calm in triggering moments. And because we are all human, we also include strategies for repairing after we inevitably lose our cool. In honor of Maternal Mental Health Week, you can save $20 on the course with promo RAGE20 this week only. Don't miss out on your chance to save and make a positive change. Head to momwell.com slash rage and save with code RAGE20. That's momwell.com slash rage code RAGE20. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. So many things tumbling around in my brain as you're describing this, because we're in a time that motherhood sociologists have called intensive mothering, right? This belief that we have to be and do and, you know, be everything for our children at the cost of ourself often, that we have to spend all of our time, all of our resources, give them the best of everything, and that that is our current existing definition of what it means to be a good mom. Not all countries, people, generations, whatever, have lived and parented in this current (laughs) climate in the way that we have to and do. And so if this is the air we're breathing, is this intensive mothering where in order to be the perfect mother, I have to do all the things, 
it goes against our very nature of what it means to be good. Correct. To offload this to somebody else. Correct. So it's like, like you're saying, the offloading part isn't actually the hard part. Like the sitting down with the cards that are so, you know, visual and helpful to sit with them and divide them out in a way that feels fair. Right. It's, it's only 40 minutes of your entire life. Is a simple task to do. So why did I have to write a book about it? Right. Why did I have to write a right. whole book about it? I would just hand out the cards and be like, why are you guys not doing this? Right. And exactly. It was all of this. It's the whole first half of fair play it had to be about why the hell are you not even coming to the table? And yes. it is triggering work, Erica. It is triggering work. Yeah. Yeah. This whole idea that we have to be and do it all. And when we can free ourselves from this expectation, like society puts this expectation on us. It's like, I'm not blaming mothers that we find ourselves in this no, position. No, no, no. But when we can realize and say like, and this is essentially the crux of the works that I do, like you can be human. You are not going to break your child if you're not there for one tuck-in time. <laughs> How many tuck-in times are you there for? Go have your book night. Go do something for you because you are going to suffocate, right, in this experience. And it kind of makes me grieve like the lost potential that's out there too. Like when I talk about how if I didn't have this awakening or realization, this platform wouldn't exist. If you didn't have this moment, and not that it should take a break, breaking point, but if you didn't, imagine the works that wouldn't be in the world like there's so much potential to be found. And I, I love that's where your next work has gone to draw that out of people. Like there's so much potential out there when women can break out of this. And time. Yeah. I mean, I think what it comes down to is that our time is not infinite and it is not infinite. And I'm going to say that again, it is not infinite. And so when you hold all of the cards as you said, you you suffocate. And look, I, single mothers, I see you. And my mother had to drop many a card to continue to be the person she wanted to be, which is ultimately a tenured professor of social work and social change. And so I always shout her out because that was an important role model. She said, look, I'm not putting you to bed any night, <laughs> any night, because mm -hmm. I'm a, a non-tenured professor and I got the shitty time I teach my classes from Monday to Friday from 6 to 9 p.m. So maybe that is not the best way to be a latchkey kid to have to put yourself to bed every night. But I think there is a happy medium there. And as a child that felt hard, I look back and I say that life lesson of understanding her staying in her full power, even when she didn't have the privilege or the permission to do it, was extremely important and subversive and has inspired me in my activism now. But I will say, I think, Erica, the beauty of the fair play messages, which can feel overwhelming because of all these societal conditioning, especially intensive mothering, to the point where I do think that, you know, postpartum depression is almost a misnomer. I think we come out, all of us like that. Maybe they should change it so that we're just, that's the normalization. And they call it postpartum happiness. If there's one out of mil a million women who actually feel like their mm. lives have not been disrupted by this event of becoming uh, and defined by our roles. But I think the beauty, I'll tell you one quick story of this couple that I love because they started to play fair play during the pandemic. And Amy is definitely an intensive mother. And I think the idea was sort of subversive to her that she would invite Richard in to the parenting. But the story they told me was they go through the cards, right? The system, the ownership mindset, right? Before you divide them up, a big piece of combating intensive mothering and intensive parenting at all, uh, again, which aligns very closely to your work, Erica, is looking at the cards to assess what you even want to do in the first place. Mm. Do you want to send thank you notes? Do you want to even do extracurricular sports? Are you on the same page about that? Do you have the same idea of what your school breaks should look like? Do you have 100 piano lessons for your kids? Or can a school break just look like them watching TV for 10 hours a day like I did growing up or whatever? Right. So, you know, going through and understanding what cards are even in play, which ones you want to throw out of your deck, like that's a really important exercise. So Richard and Amy go through this exercise. They're very proud of the cards they pulled out, like thank you notes. They're not going to send thank you notes anymore. They're not going to do a holiday card this year. Um, I was very proud of them. But one that they really reflected on was a card called Magical Beings. 
And that is for them, they define it as Santa and the tooth fairy and Amy has Irish heritage. So there's a lucky leprechaun or something like that. I forget the name of that magical being. I have to ask her again. But the idea that they were going to continue this practice with their kids. So Richard decides that in their division of labor, that he wants to be the tooth fairy. He's going to take that role on for at least mm. until they redeal for the next couple of months. Because Amy was doing a lot of things at night and um, she became the president of the school PTA during an intense time of COVID where there's a lot going on. So he took on the tooth fairy card, the magical beings. And the first time his daughter, uh, the, her second tooth, she loses her second tooth on his watch. And the tooth fairy, ta-da, you can predict the story, right? The tooth fairy does not come. Mm. The tooth fairy doesn't come. So what Amy and Richard tell me about what life looked like after fair play compared to what their patterns were before is very small, but very important because this gets to the point that it does not have to change overnight. So Amy says to me before fair play, what she would have done is said back to the accountability and trust. I can never trust you again. You've ruined our daughter's life. You've taken the magic out of her life. She will never trust anybody anymore. She'll probably have terrible relationships her whole life. Mm -hmm. This whole like litany of verbal assassin that would then discourage Richard from ever trying to come forward and do more things in the home. Right. And then Richard reflected that he would have heard that, but also he would have blamed Amy for not putting the dollar under the pillow, that she didn't remind him. Mm. So that was their dynamic before. What they tell me happens after is that Amy says, I didn't say anything. And the reason why she didn't have to say anything is because Richard automatically said, this was my responsibility and I fucked up. I messed up. Mm -hmm. And so she said, you know, I'm not going to say anything, but I'm going to give you the space to carry through your mistake and you better carry through your mistake. And that was it. And what Richard did, he told me, was he emailed toothfairy at gmail.com, which God, thank you, whoever you are out there for helping parents. <laughs> but, but creepily, he gets a response from the toothfairy at gmail.com that says, I'm sorry, I'm backlogged on teeth. He prints out the email for his daughter, shows her and says, look, the tooth fairy responded and she comes late. But guess what? When she's late because she's overwhelmed with teeth, she brings double the money. And now his daughter always asks, is the tooth fairy going to be late? Because she wants double the money for her next tooth. And I love that story because yeah. it's that small. It doesn't mean that all the societal expectations that Amy's living in are gone away. It doesn't mean that maybe intensive mothering is not still there. But the dynamic in that relationship, the carrying through the mistake, the giving someone permission to invite your partner in to their full power in the home so that you can start stepping out into your full power in the world is really what, to me, the crux of Fair Play is about. Well, and I think that this intensive mothering tells us that we have to cling to the power within the home because we've given up every other power. I think about it when you're talking from like your organizational perspective, like in businesses and things. So within my business, we have things called SOPs, standard operating procedures for every yeah. <laughs> role or thing that has a procedure. And so anybody can step in at any moment and know what needs to be done in the event that the person who's not there can take it over. In the home, a mom carries every bit of invisible load yep. in her own mind and there is no standard operating procedure sort of out there that our partner comes and steps in and knows, and there's like this free exchange of information. And then it's like, well, they should know. And then, you know, like the pattern sort of ensues from there. Yep. But there has to be this practice and exchange or this conversation with the cards and fair play and have it divvied up in these conversations to be had. So the person sort of knows what the expectations are or what the, the thing is. And should partners take a more active role in helping versus passive and waiting to be asked. That's a very big conversation that comes up. I feel like it could be a, a whole topic in itself, but they also haven't had to in a lot of instances. Like, Correct. You, like that story Correct. you told off the top, right? Like, but I get my leisure time. Like it's been built around me this way. Right. Yeah. Right. Yes. It's been great. I mean, like you want to wipe the asses and do the dishes. And I think that we know what's been called on TikTok, weaponized incompetence or... Yes, that's where I was going next. Yeah, yeah, all of these different ways that we try to avoid these tasks, I think is ultimately missing the point. Because at the end of the day, 
I remember when I was first going out to publishers and the first thing I heard was like, you want to write a book on housework and chores? Like what? Wasn't that talked about in the nineties, right? It was highly subversive to try to explain that I wanted a book that was actually a metaphor for a card game. And to explain that to a publisher, to say, this is to me, the one crisis, the unlocking of gender justice, this last frontier of feminism is ironically in the place closest to us. But it's more than that. What I realized and why fair play became a love letter to men is because when we reduce all of these fair play cards or how you divide up the invisible work and your beautiful graphics, it is completely missing the point that this is our humanity. Mm. It is our humanity. And so I think it would be fun. So I'm going to play a game with you. Yeah. As we wrap up, if we have like one more minute, I'm just going to shuffle. And then this gets to the point of what we're talking about, which Eric and I talk about the humanity. I'm just going to start shuffling and then just, just tell me when to stop. Okay. Stop. Okay. Let's see what we get. Okay. Here we go. School service kids, school service. Okay. So I want to hear any story that you have growing up about whether your parents were involved in any school service. Were they on the PTA? Did they come to field trips? Did they not do that stuff? Bake sales? Anything you can tell me about your child and what you remember about your experience with your parents in school service? Well, it's really interesting, actually, because I went through a high conflict custody and access assessment growing up. So a lot of the norms within the home probably didn't exist because there was so much conflict. Mm -hmm. And actually, my dad was the stay-at-home parent that had more flexibility, and my mom worked a lot. So it's a very interesting and bizarre dynamic in my life growing up. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But when we're talking about school service with my children, this is the most bizarre thing that we've been encountering lately is I am actively trying and my husband is actively willing to take on all things regarding school. The calls, the pickups, the disruptions, the filling out of the COVID screenings that I would have to quit my freaking job for to keep up with right now. And we have given all of that to him. We've let everybody know, I will never return your call (laughs) nine to five. Erica never will. Find Fresnel, find dad. Why do they call me every single time? Like we are actually like actively trying (laughs) and have handed all of these things off. Yep. Like I have to say, call my husband. I'm in the middle of a meeting. I can't deal with this right now. And um, well, that gets back to our societal thing. I so I called over 50 schools between 2011 and 2016, and I asked, "Why do you call women?" And that all comes back to our, circles back to our initial point, right? This idea that I heard, we don't want to bother the men or they won't pick up or they won't know what to do. It was always a guarding, a guarding of men's time as diamonds. Mm. And even when you push back against these norms, what you're going to see is your mother-in-law, possibly your school, your friends, right? Because it's triggering work and you're doing something different it actually sometimes is harder for the external to catch up with the internal. But why I think school service is an interesting card is because what I remember growing up was that the only thing I wanted in my life that I would pray for at night was that my mother show up on one field trip. Mm. I, you know, there were all these mothers, never fathers, who were the school chaperone field trip supervisors. And my own trauma of my mother never showing up for field trips meant that I signed up for every damn field trip for Zach between his years of two and his little preschool till about six. Right. Until I said to myself, I don't need to complete this cycle. I don't need to make up for the amends of what my mother didn't do for me. Mm-hmm. Zach is living in a very different household than I grew up in. And this is draining me to the point where I can't keep up with it anymore. I can't miss full days if I want to maintain a career of all of these active supervision in school. And so I went from intensely school service to doing literally none at all. And Seth taking over that card where he does very minimal school service without guilt and shame. But the reason why I bring these up and any one of these cards can be a fun game is if you are not ready yet to think about implementing a new system in your home, what you can do with these cards. And again, they're on the website 
as a free resource, or you, of course, you can actually get the full deck, but think about to yourself or with your partner. One couple told me they were playing this game where they just pull a card out and they just use their check-in time Mm -hmm. back to communication, you know, the boundary systems communication, that communication piece in the formula. They've been starting to start having these conversations in a less triggering way by just saying, we're going to take one card from our deck, spend 10 minutes each day, just telling stories from our childhood. Yes. What do you remember about who took you to soccer? Did you play growing up? Did you have a uniform? Just because, you know, we think we know all these things that inform our parenting about our partner. But the truth is that we know very little stories, very little about our partner. And so that's been fun for me to learn about Seth. I've been asking him actually packing and unpacking was a big one. Like, did you have suitcases growing up? What did your suitcases look like? Do you remember, did you pack yourself? It's been fun to have these conversations around the different cards because it's given us new anecdotes and stories. And even just learning a little bit about you and your school service from hearing that your father is a stay-at-home dad, even in 30 seconds, I feel like we can thread deeper in our conversation just by talking about our humanity in this unpaid labor. Yes. And it gives you insight into why your partner values the things that they value in their parenting role, right? We may know the value, but we may not understand the context. And that context speaks so deeply and richly to why it's so important to them. Yeah. And when I was signing Seth up for all these field trips and he's like, I don't want to do this. And I was (laughs) screaming at him that you're the most terrible father, right? All these things before we sort of of really came into our own and fair play. I realized a lot of it when I finally was able to look back was my own personal shit, right? Yeah. With um, the fact that I didn't have people showing up for me in my, on my field trips. So yeah, you can break that cycle. You can break that cycle, or at least understand your cycle before you throw all your shit on your partner without, you know, them understanding it. Yeah. I have so enjoyed getting to know you today. And I honestly hope that this is the first conversation of many for us, both on yeah. and off the air, Eve. I'm so happy to have had this time with you. Where can people find you both online? Where can they find your book offerings? Your new book drops December 28th, this Find Your Unicorn space and Taking Back Your Power, Finding Who You Are. So where can they find you? Thank you for saying that. Um, Fair Play Life is our Instagram handle and also our website. All of these tools are there that we talked about today. Minimum Standard of Care, the CPE checklist, if you want help to understand what we mean by these terms we're talking about. And then my own personal Instagram is Eve Rodsky, and I always answer DMs there. That's the more angry one, (laughs) the more systems change one. But of course, I'd love to hear from any of your listeners. But um, I really feel that way too, Erica, that you're a cultural warrior. I respect you so much. And um, I hope this is, again, just, just a 101, just one of many conversations as we continue to navigate and find more research and data in women, as you said, finding themselves and finding their power. Mm -hmm. I so feel the same way. So thank you. And we will link all of your resources in the show notes. This will also be turned into a blog post that'll have your details linked there as well. And I feel like instead of goodbye, it's until next time. So thank you. Yeah, until next time. And by the way, you're a kindred spirit. The fact that you have SOPs, (laughs) I knew you would. You are a combination of creativity and systems. I couldn't love you more. Uh, Thank you so much. Bye, Erica. Talk to you soon. This is one of our most loved and talked about episodes. And listening back, it's easy to see why. So many of us can relate to Eve's blueberry story. This moment where we just can't do it anymore and we wonder how we ended up being the one to run the household and manage the invisible load. That moment becomes a crossroads where we can either continue to carry the load in a way that leaves us depleted, resentful, and overwhelmed, or we can begin to start countering the messages that we've been carrying about our time, our worth, and begin to create change, not just for ourselves, but for our entire family. I really love Eve's message about how this work benefits our partners as well. We're mothering in a society that tells us we should sacrifice ourselves, our time, our well-being, everything for our children. And it's very hard to break away from that idea. But remember that welcoming our partner into the load isn't being selfish and it isn't burdening them. It isn't taking away from who we are as moms. 
In fact, it actually gives our partner the opportunity to step into their own power in the home and to take ownership and to build confidence and capability the same way that we have. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to revisit some of our other episodes about the invisible load, including 127 on gender norms with Kate Mangino, episode 138 with Dr. Darcy Lockman, and episode 148 with Gemma Hartley. And if this episode really resonated with you, I want to hear about it. Send me a DM or leave a quick review. If you're struggling with the invisible load, please know that you are not alone and you can learn how to do things differently. Our mom therapists can help you prioritize the load, communicate with your partner, and share the labor. Head to momwell.com booking to schedule a free 15-minute virtual consult today. That's momwell.com booking. I'll see you right back here, same time, same place next week, where we are continuing with our best of the year and pulling another episode from the vault. And this one is Jill Kozio, CEO of Motherly, talking all things millennial mothering. You don't want to miss it. I'll see you right back here next week. I can't even begin to tell you how happy and honored I am that you choose to spend your time here with me each week. If you're looking for resources or links from today's show, or you need a refresh on anything we've talked about, visit our show notes. You can find the link in the episode description, or you can head directly to momwell.com slash learning center. To join the Momwell email list and be the first one to know about new episode drops, insider info, or freebies, head to momwell.com slash newsletter. Join me next week. Until then, remember that you have to be well to mom well. <laughs>